Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Today we are returning to our study of the book of Mark. We finished chapter 1 this past September, and then we took a break from this series, and we did that for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, and then for our Are You Able series that we just finished last week. Today, we are going to return to our study of the book of Mark, specifically in chapter 2. As I said, when we first began this study, we are going to go through the entire book of Mark together. And uh, this may take considerable time, but that's okay. We're going to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, regardless. We may need to pause our study from time to time to make room for the Holy Spirit, just as we've done over the last several months. But Lord willing, we will always come back to this series until we complete the study of the book of Mark together. Now, I love to preach through the Bible one book at a time because it's one of my most favorite things to do. Neither you or I will have to question where we're going to be each week. You'll know. So I want to encourage you to be reading and studying through the book of Mark as we go through this study together. Now, before we pick this study back up, beginning in chapter 2, I'd like to review how and where the book of Mark fits in the New Testament. The first four books in the New Testament are called the Gospels. The word gospel literally means good news. Each of these four books, they share the story about the same main character, Jesus. They all reveal the truth about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And each of these books was written all for a different group of people, by a different author to accomplish a very different purpose. So let me give you a high-level overview of these four Gospels before we dive into the Gospel of Mark specifically. The Gospel of Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew. He was originally a despised tax collector who left that occupation behind to follow Jesus as one of his 12 disciples. Matthew's audience for his Gospel were the Jews. The Jews were very familiar with the law of Moses and the prophets. And Matthew makes more references to the Old Testament than any other gospel. Matthew is also the connecting link between the Old and the New Testaments because it demonstrates how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies written about the coming Messiah, the promised king who would be a descendant of David. Mark is the shortest of all the gospels, and it was written by John Mark. John was his Jewish name, and Mark was his Latin surname. It's believed that John Mark had a very close relationship with the Apostle Peter, and therefore his gospel was written based on Peter's eyewitness account. Mark's audience is believed to have been primarily non-Jews in and around the city of Rome. While Matthew's focus was on Jesus as the promised king, Mark's gospel focus was on Jesus as a suffering servant. Also, Mark's gospel is less about what Jesus said, and it's more about what Jesus did. It's a book of action, and it reads the most like a story. It's also believed to have been the first gospel account ever written. In fact, over 90% of the verses in the book of Mark are quoted in the other gospels. Luke is the longest of the four gospels, and also is the longest book in the New Testament. Luke was a doctor. And he was a man of great detail, which explains the thoroughness of his gospel account. 
Luke was a close friend and traveling companion to the Apostle Paul. And his focus throughout his gospel account was on Jesus as both fully God and fully man. The Savior for all with compassion for all. John wrote his gospel account primarily to show that Jesus is God. His gospel has a very different look and feel than the other three gospels. And how he begins his gospel is a great example of this. Matthew begins his gospel account with Abraham and traces all the generations down to Jesus. Mark begins with Jesus' baptism. Luke begins with Jesus' birth. But John, he takes it all the way back to the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning. John tells the story of God who loved the world so much that he himself became a man, just like you and I, in the person of Jesus Christ. Then he lived among us, experiencing all the same temptations that you and I face, yet he never sinned. And then he died on the cross for us so that we could live with him for all eternity. John tells us how to have life and how to have life more abundantly. And it all starts and ends with a personal relationship with God through Jesus. These are the four gospels accounts in the Bible. So now we can see how and where the book of Mark fits in the New Testament as one of these four. Let's pray. Father, we invite you here to tune our hearts to you today, that we may hear your truth, and not just hear it, but also take action upon it, and that we would share it to all those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Mark, we see Jesus as the Son, as a servant, and as a Savior. All three of these representations will be common themes as we continue to go through this book together. But the one that's going to stand out among all the others is Jesus as a servant. He did not come into this world as a conquering king as most people expected. He came as a servant. In fact, in what may be the key verse in all of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our challenge as we study this book together is to learn from the life that Jesus lived in service and sacrifice to others. That is our challenge. Because we are the most like Jesus when we serve like Jesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we've got them here on the bookshelf. You can borrow. You can follow along on your mobile device or on the screen. Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. When he entered Capernaum, meaning Jesus, again after some days it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So now that we've seen and heard the big picture of our text, let's dive deeper to see what truths that shake out from our study. The first observation that jumps out to me is in verse 2 of our text. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. No more room. The house Jesus was staying in was packed full of people. And even outside the door, there were more people jammed up close to the house to hear Jesus speak. And then all of a sudden, these four dudes come carrying their buddy who is paralyzed to see Jesus. And there was no more room. They cannot even get to Jesus because there were so many people. In other words, their path to Jesus was blocked. There was no more room. Which brings me to the title of today's message. Make room. Make room. We all need to make room for Jesus in our lives. And not just in our lives, we need to make room for Jesus in other people's lives as well. I want you to think about this with me. Each person in the crowd around Jesus is so consumed with themselves that they don't even recognize the need and the desperate condition that this paralyzed man was in. Each person in the crowd around Jesus was just so consumed with themselves. Why aren't we reading that as the crowd saw these four dudes carrying this paralyzed man, Why aren't we reading that they stepped back and made room for him to get to Jesus? Why is that? They didn't make room. They blocked his path. They were in the way. I wonder how many of us are in the way of others. I wonder how many of us are not making room for others to get to Jesus. We can be in the way by our attitude. Are we warm and welcoming? We can be in the way by our actions. Are we reflecting the love of Jesus Or are we casting a shadow on the love of Jesus? Are we a stumbling block or are we an encourager and an enabler by being a truth bearer in both word and action? How are we making room for others to come to Jesus? That's the question today. It's easy to get into our own comfortable little circles, our own tight little cliques, and act like there is no room for anyone else. Unfortunately, I've seen this happen in so many churches, and some of you probably have as well. We should be making room for others, not building our own comfortable little nests with our own comfortable friends. The crowd around Jesus were oblivious to the need of this paralyzed man. They had no idea because their focus was not on making room. May we always be a church that makes room for those in need for those broken in spirit, for those trapped by sin, for those who are eager to serve because the only solution to those problems and life struggles is Jesus. He is the only one who can truly help. Now, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. I am not a numbers guy who is concerned about how many people walk through the doors of the church. For me, it's not about the number of butts in the seats, not at all. Whether we're a church of 50 people or 5,000 people, my heart's desire will always be 
that whoever and however many people come through the church doors, there will always be room for them to connect with Jesus, grow in their faith, and be disciples of Jesus who make disciples for Jesus. That will never change for me. It is not about quantity. It is all about quality. The numbers are up to the Lord. It is not up to us. No man can come unto the Father except the Holy Spirit who draws him. It is the Holy Spirit that draws. But the question is, how are we cooperating with the Holy Spirit to make room for him to work and to make room for others to connect and grow with Jesus? Some of you may have noticed that this living room is getting full week over week. I want to ask that you please join with me in prayer on how we make more room here at the remnant. Do we start knocking out walls to add more seats? You know, knocking out walls comes at a cost. Not just in time and resources, but also the sacrifice of precious classroom space that we use week in and week out. Also, we don't own this building. We're just leasing it. So you've got to ask yourselves, how much do we want to invest in something that's not ours. We've only got two years remaining on this lease. We would have we ended the lease this November, by the way. Thankfully, the owner was willing to negotiate with us. So we got two more years. So praise the Lord. Do we add a second service? A second service would mean we need more people to step up and serve because with two services, now we would have twice the workload. And we can't expect the same people to carry both loads. These are some tough challenges. But through prayer and petition, I am confident that the Lord will show us the right answer. Are you willing to make room? Let's continue in verse 3 of our text. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. They were not able to get to Jesus because of the crowd. The crowd blocked their path. There was no more room. So what do these dudes do? They make room. They make room. There was no way to get to Jesus. And these guys carry their paralyzed buddy up onto the roof, and they make room. I just love that. There is no more room, and yet by faith, they make room. They could have easily said, the crowd is too big. We'll never get to Jesus. Oh, well, let's go home and we'll try again tomorrow. But no, they'd have none of that. Their paralyzed buddy was in desperate need, and nothing would deter them from getting to Jesus. There was no more room, so they made room for their friend to get to Jesus. How are you making room? How are you making room for others to get to Jesus? How are you making room in your life for Jesus? Is your life packed so full of stuff that there's no room for him? Are you running all over in your life just being busy and you have no room for Jesus? What is more important than him? Don't be fooled. Satan wants you busy in the world. He wants you worried and stressed out and fearful and occupied with anything and everything but him, but Jesus. Does that describe your life today? How can you make room for Jesus in your life right now? You see, these guys in our story made room by digging through the roof. Roofs in those days were made of wood beams with mud mixed with straw. So these guys had to put forth some effort. 
They had to get their hands dirty. To make room for Jesus will require us to put forth some effort, which may mean we have to get dirty to do it. Are you with me? Are you willing to make room for Jesus? Maybe that means you make time to spend in his word. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the phrase, I just don't have time. We make time for what's a priority in our lives. Is Jesus a priority in your life? Because if he is, then you'll make room for him. You'll make room to spend time in his word. How else can we expect to grow to be like him? How else can we expect to renew our minds so that we're not conformed to this world, but rather we are transformed to be more like Jesus? How else can we expect to hear from him? We have to make room for his word in our lives. The word is alive. It is active. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. His word is our spiritual food. To not make room for it makes us weak and malnourished spiritually. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry again. To make room for Jesus, we have to make time to pray. This is our opportunity to talk to God and to tell him what's on our mind and what we need. It's also our opportunity to praise him and for who he is and to give him thanks. Are you making room for prayer in your life? There are many ways to make room for Jesus in our lives. The Bible and prayer are the most fundamental and most essential. Other ways are through fellowship with other believers. We have Bible studies going on for both men and women every week. Soon we're also going to have life groups. There are ample opportunities for you to grow and to fellowship, but you have to make room for these things in your life. There's no such thing as solo Christians, lone ranger Christians. We need each other. God made us to be interdependent. Those gifts that he's given each of us, if you're a child of God, those are to be used to bless others, not just for you. And we do that in the body of Christ. So there's got to be fellowship. The faith of the four men who carried the paralyzed friend is what compelled them to action. It was their faith that caused them to make room. You see, genuine faith always, always results in action. It's not just an intellectual hope or trust. It is a hope and a trust that believes, obeys, and takes action. And notice how Jesus responds in our text in verse 5. He says, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. He saw their faith before he did anything. It was their faith that moved him to do something about it. In other words, there was evidence of their faith. There was fruit from their faith. We see this over and over again in the scriptures. It's a very common theme. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus encountered a Roman officer, a centurion, who had a servant who was very sick and was about to die. So when he heard that Jesus was in town, he sent some Jewish leaders to him, uh, to Jesus, to ask for him to come and heal his servant. So Jesus started on his journey to come to him. And then the Roman officer, that centurion, he sent some friends to tell Jesus, hey, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. When Jesus heard this, the word says in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, that he was amazed. And then he said, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. 
You see, the Roman officer acted on his faith because genuine faith takes action. Genuine faith makes room. We see a, familiar, uh, a similar faith in the woman who had an incurable bleeding condition. She had had this condition for 12 years. And just like the men in our story today who by faith made room, this woman with the bleeding condition also made room by her faith. She somehow pushed her way through this entire crowd of people to get to Jesus. And she said to, her, she said to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And that's exactly what she did. And Jesus told her in Luke chapter 8, verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. In all three of these examples that I've mentioned today, there is one common thread, and that is this. Faith takes action. Faith takes action. It is a faith that believes Jesus is the only hope. It's a faith that will make room, and it's a faith that will be desperate enough to push through any and all adversity to get to Jesus. So let me circle back to verse 5 of our text today. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus sees your faith, what does he see? What kind of faith does Jesus see when he looks at you? This is so important because all throughout Scripture, we often see that faith is what leads to Jesus' response. Now, more than likely, the four men who carried the paralyzed friend, they were eager to get to Jesus so that Jesus would heal their friend, right? That was their motivation. What's interesting here is that that was not the first thing that Jesus addressed. You know the story. No, Jesus cuts through all the hope or all the hype, and he goes directly for the greatest need we all have. Our bodies may be wasting away. Our circumstances may be incredibly desperate, but our deepest need is always our sin problem. And that's what Jesus goes for first. Now, we can't conclude from the details available in the Word of God about this story that the sin was what caused this paralyzed man's condition. We can't come to that conclusion. He could have been born paralyzed. He could have had some accident somewhere along the, in his life. We don't know. But we do know this. In this fallen world, we are all sinners. There is no one righteous, not even one. So our most basic and most critical need is our sin problem. Because without forgiveness from sin, there is only spiritual death. Sin requires payment, and the price is far too high for any of us to pay it ourselves. Jesus took the punishment that we all deserve by dying on the cross for our sins. The blood he shed was the payment for our sins, and it was a payment in full. By his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus is the only one who can forgive our sins. He is the only one who can heal our spiritual condition. And so Jesus, seeing the faith of these men, looked at the paralyzed man and said, Your sins are forgiven. The greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed was not calming the storm. It was not walking on the water. It was not healing the sick. It was not multiplying the loaves and the fish. The greatest miracle that Jesus performs is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. It's what meets the greatest need. It's what costs the greatest price. And it's it's what brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting and fulfilling results. Forgiveness is 
is the greatest need we all have. Our spiritual well-being is far more important than our physical well-being. And yet, many of us spend too much time focused on the physical without making room for the spiritual. Are you with me? Are you ready to make room for Jesus in your life? I can camp right here. (laughs) Because nothing can fulfill you like Jesus. Nothing can heal you like Jesus. Nothing can bring joy like Jesus. Nothing can bring peace like Jesus. Nothing even compares to Jesus. What are you making room for in your life? Let's return to our text, beginning in verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does, he, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? Now, here is something incredibly awesome about these verses that I didn't even notice a few years ago. Jesus demonstrates that he is God right here in this text. God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He's all-knowing. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows the end from the beginning. He is all-knowing. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, it says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. God knows every detail in our lives. His word says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 30, that God even notices when a little sparrow falls to the ground or when we lose a single hair on our head because every hair on our head is numbered. He knows our thoughts even before we speak them. Psalm 139, verse 4, it says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, knew perfectly well that God knows everything. Here's what he said about God in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39. Then hear from heaven where you live and forgive. Give your people what their actions deserve, for you alone know each human heart. You alone know each human heart. God is omniscient. He knows everything, and he is the only one like this. And if we jump back to our text in verse 8, we see that Jesus demonstrates that he is God by perceiving in his spirit, right? The thoughts of the Pharisees who heard him tell the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And in response to him reading their minds and hearts, which is exactly what Jesus did, he then asks them a very challenging question in verse 9, which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven, or get up, take up your mat, and walk. Obviously, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove this. Anyone can say to another person, your sins are forgiven. So clearly the second part of the question is the most difficult. No one can say to someone who's paralyzed, get up, take up your mat, and walk, and then the person literally actually get up and walk. No one can do that. That is impossible unless you have the power of God. 
which is exactly what Jesus demonstrates next as we pick up in our text in verse 10. But so that you may know, not that you think, but that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. Immediately he got up, took up the mat and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus not only proved that he had authority to forgive sins, he also showed that he is God. Because God is the only one who can heal a paralyzed man. God is the only one who can forgive sins. He is the only one who has this power. Because he is holy, holy, holy. There is none like him. He is the lawgiver. He is the judge. He is the executioner. And he is the only one who provided the sacrifice to cover our sins. And look what happened to the crowd who watched this paralyzed man be healed in verse 12 of our text. They were astounded, and they gave glory to who? They gave glory to God. Are you making room to give glory to God? Whose glory are you truly after, yours or his? Our lives can get packed full of so much stuff, so much stuff that just weighs us down. We have got to make room for Jesus. We can't be so consumed with our own lives and our own agendas that we get in the way of those who truly need Jesus. We can be in the way by our attitude, how cold or unwelcoming we are. We can be in the way by our actions, by casting a shadow on the love of Jesus instead of reflecting the love of Jesus. We need to make room. Just like the four men who needed to get to Jesus for the sake of their paralyzed friend. When there was no more room, they made room. It was their faith that compelled them to action. Genuine faith always results in action. Genuine faith makes room for Jesus. So one question that I hope is seared into your minds today is this. How can we be a church that makes room for others to come to Jesus? How can we be a church that makes room for others to come to Jesus? The greatest need we all have is forgiveness. And Jesus is the only one who can give it. Will you make room? Let's stand together and let's please uh, worship over this song. Jenna, if you don't mind getting the lights for me.
Father, that you would make room in our hearts. May we always be people of God who make room for you. Do we make room for others to get to you? Lord, may we never be those that stand in the way, those who are blocking the way, who are stumbling blocks, Lord. May we be enablers and encouragers of people to get to you. And so we love you and praise you for the word of God, for the truth in your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen. You may be seated. So I want to give you one practical way that you can make room before you leave here today. So we want to do a love offering. We want to do this for Brad and Lisa Argo. They have no idea. I know they're just squirming in their seats right now. But this is an opportunity for you to sow into this mission trip that they're about to leave on on Valentine's Day to go to Africa. Shoulder the Load is their foundation that they've started. And um, some of you know from testimonies or things you've heard that they have vowed that anything that people give to shoulder the load goes 100% to boots on the ground for mission. Which means 
that everything they've done to get themselves to Africa has been on their own dime. Taking time off from work, unpaid time, paying for plane tickets and all that. And so I know they don't want the they don't want this today, but if the Holy Spirit is leading you to make room for them by giving to them and help helping to defray or offset some of these costs that they're experiencing, then I want to encourage you to sow into that. Okay? So we're going to pray over them right now. And as the Holy Spirit leads you, as this uh, the offering is being passed around, you're welcome to sow into it. Father, we thank you so much that you are raising up Brad and Lisa from our own midst with a burden upon their heart to reach people in Africa and Haiti. And Lord, I just ask that you'd bless them abundantly, that you would surprise them by what you can do. Lord, you can do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or think, and we'll give you the glory for it, Lord. And so I don't know what you're going to do today or what that dollar amount is, but Lord, I know that you'll take care of them. And so we just pray that you'd prepare them for the work that they're going to do for you overseas. May you bless them in every detail, Lord, all the details that need to get shaken out for them to leave, the travel there, the safety there, and and just the impact for the kingdom of God, for your glory, Lord. We put it in your hands. And so move, Holy Spirit, in the hearts of all of us to sow into this as you lead. In Jesus' mighty and holy name, amen. So as that uh, offering gets passed around, if God is leading you to sow into it, please do. I am so excited for them. They have been so eager to do this. And this is something they get to do together. Uh, as a recently new married couple, I'm excited for it. Let's give them a hand clap. And as we wind down the service today, if any of you are in need of prayer of any kind, if the Holy Spirit is told you or convicted you that you've got to make room in your life and you are questioning like how do I do that and you want to come forward and pray I'll be here I'd love to pray with you I'm so excited to see more and more people grow in their faith and grow to be closer to the Lord that's what it's about so we love you God bless you may you have a great week